here we are over a week after the close of the Strange Fire Conference, and I know that uh, many of you volunteered to serve at the conference, and I can tell you that uh, it made Phil and me very proud to walk through the campus and see so many of our beloved Grace Lifers serving our guests in the way that you all did. And I trust that you have recovered from those long hours of service and hope that in between the end of the conference and now, that you've been able to listen to at least some of the sessions from the conference, the, the teaching presented there, as well as in the follow-up messages by Pastor John in the, in the last week's morning service, as well as Pastor Phil here in Grace Life last week, uh, that's been extremely beneficial in explaining from Scripture why we believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, like tongues, prophecy, and healing, have ceased with the close of the apostolic age. The Lord is no longer giving revelation, and that is so because he wants to magnify the sufficiency of the divine revelation that is preserved for us in the inspired, infallible, and inerrant written word of God, the scriptures. And I especially enjoyed Phil's sermon last week, which he gave a title as only Phil Johnson can give a sermon title. He called it, Is That Voice in My Head Really the Holy Spirit? I think Phil has the spiritual gift of sermon titles. That'll keep you busy for a little while trying to figure out where that's coming from between strange fire and spiritual gifts and all that. Well, I I thought that sermon was really practical and really helpful in explaining why we shouldn't expect that God subjectively leads us through audible whispers of his own voice or why we shouldn't interpret every gut feeling or impression as, you know, evidence of the Holy Spirit speaking directly to us in the way that he spoke to, say, the prophets of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And why we shouldn't say things like, oh, God told me such and such, without having a a chapter and a verse that ends that sentence. Justin Peters, one of the speakers who was here for the conference, is sort of famous in the evangelical subculture for saying, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. We need that message because it's, it's that kind of attitude and esteem for the scriptures that affords God's written revelation its due reverence. Often those who insist that God does still guide his people by giving subjective private revelations object to our position on the grounds that it's their desire to have a living relationship with a, a living God. And the implication is that Such a dynamic relationship can't be enjoyed by limiting our contact with him to a single book like the Bible. It's ancient, it's it's old, it's static, it doesn't move, it's fixed. But do you see how that kind of a view denigrates the sufficiency and the value of Scripture? We want a living relationship with the living God. Well, what does that imply? That the Bible is dead? And yet Scripture itself says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. See, if our desire is to have a living relationship with the living God, we go to Him through His living Word. And I trust that the conference has been faithful to underscore that truth in your own hearts and minds. And if it hasn't, go listen to it again or watch it again or for the first time. And yet, there is a danger for us cessationists. There's a danger that we need to arouse all our faculties to vigilantly guard against. 
And that danger is not at all brought on by any fault of the theology that says the miraculous gifts has ceased and that the written word of God is entirely sufficient for the lives of God's people. This danger is brought on, rather, by the tendency of the human heart to swing the pendulum out of a good desire to repudiate error clearly and conclusively, we can sometimes overcorrect and we can wind up embracing a different error on the opposite side of the spectrum. And that error is to go about living our Christian life as if our relationship with Christ was purely cerebral. It's the error that substitutes knowledge about Christ for true personal knowledge of Christ. It's the error that is satisfied with merely having good theology and sound intellectual knowledge of the content of the Scriptures rather than going to the Scriptures and studying sound theology in order to see and know and admire and walk with Jesus. You see, the Charismatics fail to treat the Scriptures as living and active by seeking vital and personal intimate communion with God apart from His written Word. But if we're not careful, we can fail to treat the Scriptures as living and active by not seeking that vital and intimate communion at all, by treating the knowledge of Christ as if it were merely intellectual. But for all our desire to exalt the primacy and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture, and for all our desire to decry the excesses of mysticism and subjectivism, we cannot forget, dear friends, that the heart of the Christian life is a living, dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the experience of true living fellowship with Him through His Word, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, and through all the circumstances of life that is the backbone of what it means to follow Christ. The Puritans, who we learned last week were outspoken cessationists, were just as outspoken about what they called the experimental knowledge of Christ, the experience of delightful communion with God through His Word and through those other means that I just listed. One writer defined communion with God as the mutual exchange of spiritual benefits between God and His people based on the bond between them in Christ. I'm going to read that again. The mutual exchange of spiritual benefits between God and His people based upon the bond between them in Christ. That is so much different than simply amassing knowledge about a character of history by reading second and third hand sources. It's the first hand mutual communication of love between two living persons and the joy that springs from such a relationship. You might be able to discuss the fine points of the hypostatic union or give expository outlines of the minor prophets from memory, but if the knowledge of the content of the Scripture and the knowledge of sound theology doesn't propel you into worshipful communion with the triune God, you're missing the point. In his classic work, Communion with God, John Owen writes, What am I the better... If I can dispute that Christ is God, but have no sense or sweetness in my heart from hence that He is a God in covenant with my soul. What does it matter if I can prove that Christ is God if I don't have any sense of Him being my God? Now, if anyone understood this reality, 
It was the Apostle Paul. Because in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that it is this living, dynamic, personal, intimate, day-by-day communion with Jesus Christ that is the reason why he could lose everything in this life and count it gain. You remember that in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul lists out seven religious advantages that he had trusted in for righteousness before he met Christ. He says, I was orthodox. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite by birth. My bloodlines are pure. As a Benjamite, I belong to the most socially illustrious group of Jewish society. My parents and I were Hebrews. We weren't Hellenists. We maintained our religious traditions in spite of the surrounding Greco-Roman culture. My religious devotion was second to none. I was a Pharisee. My zeal for Judaism was so evident that I persecuted the church of God. I killed Christians, or at least gave approval to that. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. And so when Paul looked at those inherited privileges and those religious achievements, he saw them all as gains with respect to establishing his own righteousness. They were all pluses written in black ink in the assets column in his spiritual ledger book. Surely if any man had a shot at achieving righteousness before God by his own efforts, it was the Apostle Paul. But in verse 7, he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When Christ appeared on the Damascus road in a blazing glory, The light of that holiness shone across the pages of Paul's ledger book, and in that light, every fleshly advantage that he had written in the assets column had been moved to the liabilities column. All of Paul's self-righteousness that once looked like gains to him were now like the heavy cargo on a storm-tossed ship, weighing him down and threatening to drown him in the sea of eternal punishment. He counted All of his religious credentials as loss, he says, jettisoned the cargo of his self-righteousness overboard and trusted in the righteousness of Christ alone for his acceptance before God. But that's not all he lost. He goes on to say in verse 8, more than that, I continue to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, refuse, so that I may gain Christ. So Paul actually suffered the loss of all things, he says. He not only did he abandon all confidence in himself and in his own religious performance, he also lost all the privileges that he would have enjoyed if he continued as a respected member of Jewish society. He was disowned and disinherited by his family. He traded his vocation as a respected religious teacher for the blue-collar work of tent-making. He forfeited a comfortable lifestyle with an upper-class income for a life of beatings, stonings, imprisonments, homelessness, and constant conflict. Money, possessions, reputation, status, comfort, easy living, even family, Paul lost them all. And as the Judaizers are tempting the Philippians to submit themselves to Jewish ceremonies for righteousness, 
The Philippians are looking at Paul and they're asking him, Paul, do you miss what you had in Judaism? They're offering that to us right now. Do you miss what you had in Judaism? Do you ever wish that you could have it all back? And he says, not only do I not miss it, I count it all as refuse. I count it all as nothing more than the garbage that is fit to be thrown only to the wild dogs. How can Paul speak that way? What makes a man behold all the earthly glory of self-righteousness, possessions, money, property, reputation, status, comfort, ease, and 10,000 other things and regard them as trash? Look again at verse 8. It says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, Paul can lose everything that life has to offer and rejoice. He can lose everything and call it gain because of the surpassing value of what? Of knowing Christ. So do you see why, friends, this intimate, personal, day-by-day communion with Christ is something that we cannot afford to give up? It's because the knowledge of Christ is the unique source of spiritual strength that will empower us to sever all ties with all the idols that our world tempts us to worship, to lose everything that this life has to offer us if God should will it so, and say, for me, to live is Christ than to die is gain, to say that Jesus is worth more than a comfortable life. He is worth more than the approval of my family or the prestige of a worldly reputation and fame. He's more satisfying than all the pleasures that money and sex and power could ever offer me. I count them all as worthless in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But now we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean when he speaks of knowing Christ? What is that kind of experiential communion with Christ that's worth losing everything for? What does that look like if not in mystical flights of fancy and private utterances and rolling around on the floor and speaking gibberish? What does this saving knowledge of Christ consist in. And that brings us to our text this morning. Follow along as I read Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11. Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In this text, Paul teaches us that a saving knowledge of Christ consists in three phases of the Christian salvation. A saving knowledge of Christ consists in the three phases of the Christian salvation. You've got justification in verse 9, sanctification in verse 10, 
and glorification in verse 11. Now remember, Paul is not bringing these up for the sole purpose of giving a theology lesson. He certainly discusses the theology of these three components of salvation, and we're going to dig into that theology. As we do that, we need to keep in mind that he writes this passage primarily to show that each phase of our salvation, whether justification, sanctification, or glorification, provides a unique avenue to a deeper knowledge of and communion with Christ. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to examine the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus in justification, in sanctification, and in glorification. Number one, a saving knowledge of Christ consists in tasting his sufficiency in justification. It consists in tasting his sufficiency in justification. Look again at the end of verse 8. Paul says, I count all things as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In this verse here, Paul contrasts two different kinds of righteousness. And really, he's contrasting two different religious systems, two systems of salvation, because the only way that anyone can be saved is to be found righteous before God. And though Paul is contrasting Christianity and Judaism in particular, what he says about Judaism here can be applied to every other religious system in the world. Our pastor has taught us well that there are only two categories of religion in the world. And one is the religion of human achievement, which, where man works to achieve his own righteousness. And the other is the religion of divine accomplishment, where God accomplishes righteousness on man's behalf and then freely gives it to him as a gift. The religion of divine accomplishment is Christianity. The religion of human achievement is every other religious system in the history of mankind. And we see these two religions delineated very carefully in verse 9. First, I want to draw your attention to the source of righteousness. Paul says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In the religion of human achievement, the source of righteousness is law-keeping, commandment-keeping. There's some moral and or ritualistic standard by which man is to order his life, then if he does that successfully, he may achieve a righteousness that is acceptable to his God. He earns his righteousness by keeping a law, by doing good works, whether that's the law of Moses or the law of Allah or the law of Buddha or the law of the pantheon of the Hindu gods or whatever. That person's hope is in his obedience to whatever standard that is to provide him with the righteousness that satisfies the standard of God. But in the religion of divine accomplishment, the source of righteousness is God himself. In Galatians 3.21, Paul says that no law has been given which is able to impart life. Because of humanity's total depravity, because of the depth of our sinfulness, because our sinfulness runs to the very core of our being, the only thing that law could do was to arouse our sinful passions and demonstrate our inability to obey as we ought. 
Paul says in Romans 3, 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Why? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because we are sinful to the core, the standards of God's righteousness could never free us from sin. They could only point out where we've continued to fall short of God's standard. And so Paul doesn't want a righteousness that is sourced in the law. No such thing could exist. Rather, he says in Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, my old way of life in Judaism could only have provided a righteousness that was sourced in the law, but that kind of righteousness could never save. So I count that righteousness, that kind of righteousness as rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ, because in him I have the righteousness which comes from God. So I'll gladly count that to be loss so that I may gain him. Because that's where righteousness is, and that's where it is alone. Well, secondly, notice the basis of saving righteousness. In the religion of human achievement, the basis of righteousness is man's own obedience. Paul says at the beginning of verse 9, not having my own righteousness. He says, I don't want my own righteousness. I don't want a righteousness that is intrinsic to me. The righteousness that saves must be outside of me. It must be, as the Reformers called it, an alien righteousness. And the religion of divine accomplishment provides an alien righteousness. Look again at the text. Paul says, he wants to be found having the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. Now, follow me here. Whatever it is that you put your faith in for righteousness is the basis of your righteousness. You follow that? Whatever you put your faith in for righteousness is the basis of your righteousness. So if you put your faith in your good works for your righteousness, that's the basis of your righteousness. If you put your faith in a religious system, in a church, in ecstatic experiences, that is your basis. Whatever you believe in, trust in for righteousness is the ground of your righteousness. Paul says the true Christian trusts Christ for righteousness. He puts his faith in the alien righteousness of Christ to earn his acceptance before God. See, all of us have broken God's law. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and do presently fall short of the glory of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty that the law required when he died on the cross for the sins of his people. And not only did he pay the law's penalty, but he also obeyed all the positive demands of the law as well. So he satisfied the penalty for one who broke the law, but then he also obeyed all the positive commands, whatever the penalty said it was going to be. The good news is that when a sinner turns from his sin and puts his faith in Christ for righteousness, God treats Christ as if he lived your life and punishes him on the cross. And then God treats you as if you lived Christ's life and you enjoy the reward of eternal life. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
We get the righteousness of God because the righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ achieved on our behalf. And so Paul says the basis of justification isn't our own intrinsic righteousness that we've obtained by our own good works, whether those good works are by the brute force of our will or whether those good works are spirit-inspired good works. I just think of the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, where the Pharisee thanks God for all of his good works. He says, I acknowledge these are gifts of divine grace. These are works that the Spirit has produced in me. I give you credit for my good works, and I still trust them for righteousness. And, and Jesus says that man did not go to his house justified. And so all manner of Catholicism, the Anglican understanding of of justification, I suppose, in some circles, the new perspective on Paul, no part of your righteousness is yours. None of it is intrinsic to you. No, the basis of your righteousness is the alien righteousness of Christ that he achieved by dying in your place to pay sin's penalty and by living in your place to accomplish righteousness. Judaism could only ever get Paul his own righteousness, intrinsic to him. So he counts that righteousness as refuse so that he may be found in Christ because when he's united to Christ, he gains the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. And finally, we need to understand the means by which Christ's righteousness can be counted to be ours. We saw the source, the basis, and now the means. And it's very, very clear in this text. Paul repeats it. He says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is the foundational doctrine of the New Testament. This is the very heart of the gospel. Sinners cannot be made right with God by earning their own intrinsic righteousness, by keeping commandments, whether that's the law of Moses or any other law. Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. Why is faith so key in all of this? Did you ever ask yourself why God has made such a big deal out of that? Why it's got to be faith alone? Why take time to say no part of your righteousness is intrinsic to you? In Romans 4.16, Paul makes a comment that exposes the logic of salvation. He says in that text, for this reason, it, and it means salvation there, is referring to salvation. For this reason, salvation is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Salvation is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So Paul is teaching us that there is something inherent in the nature of faith that uniquely corresponds with the free gift of God's sovereign grace. Paul says elsewhere that if works have any part of salvation, grace is no longer grace. So rather than being the ground upon which we boast, faith is something which looks out of itself and receives the free gifts of heaven as being what they are, as pure, unmerited favor. So faith justifies. Faith is the means of justification, not in a way of merit, not on account of anything in itself, but in uniting us to Christ where the true ground of righteousness is. Now, that is so important to understand, and I'm going to speak a little bit more about it, because some people want to say, 
that faith is not just the means of salvation, the channel by which we appropriate Christ's righteousness. They say that faith is the basis of justification. The ground of our righteousness, they say, is the fact that we believed. And in fact, that wrong interpretation is served by very poor translations of this very verse. I've been reading that verse to you from the New King James Version because it's one of the few versions that translates that Greek phrase accurately. The NASB, which is my favorite translation, lets me down. And it actually uses the word basis here. The ESV isn't much of an improvement as it speaks of the righteousness of God that depends on faith. But follow me here. The gospel is at stake in whether we get faith as ground or faith as means in the right order here. My righteousness cannot depend on my faith without that righteousness becoming my own righteousness. If my righteousness depends on my doing anything, even believing, it is no longer an alien righteousness. And it is not the righteousness of God. Faith would then be made into a work upon which we could boast, and therefore grace is no longer grace. If any part of the ground of our justification is our doing, if we contribute to the basis of our righteousness in any way, there is no gospel and all of us are damned in our sins. God's holiness is so magnificently perfect His standard is so high and our depravity is so pervasive that all of our righteousness must be a free gift of his sovereign grace because we could never earn it. Now, let me explain what I mean here. I'm not saying that somebody is justified apart from faith. Faith is the condition of justification. It is is the means. It's the outstretched hand that receives the righteousness of somebody else. So don't hear me saying that we somehow just get zapped, saved apart from any Believing on our part, of course, repent and believe the gospel. But there's an eternity, literally, of difference between faith as the means which receives the ground of Christ's righteousness and faith as the ground of our righteousness. And friends, if it wasn't that way, we could never taste Christ's sufficiency and justification. We could never know Jesus in the way that we do now as he is all the ground of our righteousness. Listen carefully. If there was something that we could do that could contribute to our justification, there would be something that we could do that could disqualify us from it. But because your righteousness is an alien righteousness, because your salvation depends on the righteousness of another, the perfect righteousness of the Son of God himself, you never have to fear that your justification is in jeopardy. Dear friend, if you've been born again truly by the Spirit of God, if you've been granted these gifts of repentance and faith, then if you presently abandon all hope in your own self-righteousness derived from your own commandment-keeping, you are justified. You can never be lost. You are as secure in your salvation as Christ is righteous. But if faith is the ground of your righteousness at all. You're only as secure as your faith is strong. And I don't know about you, but I cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you taste the sufficiency of Christ in justification? Can you apprehend the surpassing value 
of knowing him as justifier. When you're on your face before the Father, ashamed to be confessing that same familiar sin again and despairing that he could ever take you back, you can cry with that hymn writer, the hymn that we sung earlier, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless, what? Righteousness. Because that sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And again, the hymn that says, And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. There is Jesus, our perfect, spotless righteousness, who ever lives to make intercession for his people, ever pleading our case before the Father, that he lived and died and rose again on our behalf, that he accomplished the righteousness that we could not and that we have been united to him by faith. That's what it means to say, my name is graven on his hands, as if he stood before the justice of the Father and said, Father, they're mine. Here is your wrath satisfied. Because of the righteousness of Christ, God then graciously counts us, counts us, imputes us to be righteous before him. And friends, when our souls have taken hold of that reality, when all our affections are gripped by the marvelous grace of God in our justification on the basis of Christ's work, then we are enjoying communion with Christ in the sphere of our justification. It is then that we know him and taste his sufficiency and experience his sweetness as our savior, the one who pardons our iniquity, the one who provides our righteousness, the one who protects us from falling, the one who pleads for us before the father. What does knowledge consist in? In tasting the sufficiency of Christ in justification. But also, number two, this surpassing knowledge of Christ consists in experiencing Christ's fellowship in sanctification. Experiencing Christ's fellowship in sanctification. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, just briefly at the outset of this verse, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the necessary fruit of justification that we just celebrated is sanctification. The necessary fruit of justification is sanctification because God's purpose in justifying us is that he might sanctify us. Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that... I may know him. Pastor John puts it this way. He says, that initial saving knowledge of Christ became the basis of Paul's lifelong pursuit of an even deeper knowledge of his Savior. That only makes sense, doesn't it? Let's say you were introduced to someone that you hadn't met before. Call him John. And as you spoke with him throughout an evening, say you're at a gathering at a friend's, you just found everything about this person to be absolutely delightful. 
He was funny. He was interesting. He was down to earth. He was interested in you and what you had to say as well. And at the end of the night, you, you go to speak with your friend who had introduced you and you say, boy, I really enjoyed meeting that guy, John, tonight. You know, we should all hang out again really soon sometime. I'd like to get to know him better. That's what Paul's saying. The one who has truly had his eyes open to taste the sufficiency of Christ in justification is necessarily spurred on by Christ's own loveliness to more earnestly seek the fellowship of Christ in sanctification. If you see him, you got to have more. If you see glory, you want more. And so we learn that justification has as its aim not just a forensic righteousness by which we are forgiven, but praise God that that is the case. It's not only that, it's also the practical righteousness whereby the justified one is progressively sanctified. So justification has an aim to provide a forensic righteousness, which counts you righteous before God, and it has as its aim an ever-deepening knowledge of God in sanctification. So God doesn't declare us righteous to leave us in practical unrighteousness. He brings us to a saving knowledge of Christ in justification in order that we might know him more deeply as we progress in sanctification. You say, where where does it say sanctification in this verse? Well, the doctrine of sanctification is wrapped up in that phrase, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is one of those great portions of Scripture that speak about the believer's union with Christ. Paul speaks about our our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that when he died, we died, and that when he rose again, we rose again. That reality ought to affect the way that we live now. He says in Romans 6, verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see, the effect of God's resurrection power on those of us who were united with Christ in his resurrection is that we might walk in newness of life, that we might progress in practical righteousness. Paul ties all these concepts, the knowledge of Christ, the power of his resurrection, how that power works in us for holiness. He ties them all together throughout his letters and especially the prison epistles. In Ephesians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but take these in and maybe write them down and look, look later. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 20, Paul prays that God will give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that they will know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, and the surpassing greatness of his power, which he says is in accordance with the strength when he raised Christ from the dead. See that? Knowledge. Power, resurrection. Ephesians 3, 16 to 20. Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may more fully dwell in your hearts through faith. That's sanctification. I want the the power of the spirit at work in you so that you can more fully apprehend and have a, a Christ and have a fully orbed faith. And in Colossians 1, 9 to 11, he prays that the Colossians would be increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power 
And he says, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So power works in us to be sanctified, to be more steadfast and more patient. And so the power of Christ's resurrection is the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit at work within us to equip us to walk in practical holiness. And you know something? That is something that the law could never do. Hebrews 7.19 says the law made nothing perfect. The law had no power to subdue sin. Romans 7, Paul says the law only aroused his sin. The commandment that said don't covet produced in me coveting of every kind. And so he counts all that he had ever known as loss, all that he had known by way of religious accomplishments and grounds for righteousness and all that he had known by way of privileges and prestige in Jewish society because in the knowledge of Christ, he found the resurrection power to walk in newness of life that he never found in the law. He found power to overcome sin and temptation. He found power to endure trials. He found power to preach the gospel. He found power to lay down his life in service to his brothers and sisters. And that same resurrection power is available to us as we experience Christ's fellowship and sanctification. And so, so far from simply desiring holiness for holiness' sake, we pursue Christ's likeness. We make efforts in our pursuit of holiness because there is more of Christ to be known at the end of that road. As we become more like him in our character, in our affections, in our thinking, in our words, and in our actions, we know him. It's as if we can learn more and more to view life and live life through Christ's eyes, tracing his footsteps, as it were, and as we follow his example of holiness. That's what it means to walk in God's ways. And in knowing God's ways through Christ, we know more of him. And one of the principal means by which this happens is through suffering for Christ's sake. Look again at verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Many months ago in our sermon on Philippians 1, 29 to 30, we spoke about how suffering for Christ is a mark of the true Christian's identity. Paul tells us in that text that it has been granted to every believer not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. John 15.20. Why? Because you'll be like me if you're mine. 2 Timothy 3.12. We should know it well by now. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who experience the power of his resurrection in sanctification and thus live godly will know the fellowship of his sufferings. And again, why? Because the darkness hates the light. Because the light of holy living exposes and indicts the sinful lifestyle of the enemies of righteousness. And they can't stand that. It's one thing if you tell them that they should live a certain way and you're not living that way. They could point to you and say hypocrite and they could feel eased in their conscience because, hey, not even the people who say you should live this way are living this way. 
But when you live a holy life, doesn't even matter if you say anything, though you should. No matter what, it just burns them up. It sticks in their craw. Why? Because they know there's somebody out there living this standard, and I'm not. And I'm going to answer for that. The fellowship of his sufferings. Paul calls this kind of suffering being conformed to Christ's death in the latter half of the verse. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Turn there briefly with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. It's a weird thing to say. We are always carrying about the, in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now that is amazing. When you looked at Paul, you were actually able to see in his body the dying of Jesus. The suffering that Paul endured for the sake of Christ was evident in his body. The toll that it must have taken, the, the beatings, the stonings, being exposed to the elements in the cold without clothing, little clothing. But Paul says when people see that kind of suffering, they're seeing a testimony to the death of Jesus. When the world looks at Christians and sees them willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, they can see something of Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross that they might be saved. And not only do they see the death of Jesus, Paul says that when the world sees Christians rejoicing in suffering, when they see us getting back up for more, just like the apostles in Acts 5, when they were beaten, said it says they kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ. When the world sees that, they see the life of Jesus as well. They see the power of his resurrection put on display in an undeniable way. What a mighty testimony it is to the world when Christians rejoice in suffering for Christ's sake. But where does that kind of joy come from? How can we rejoice in our sufferings? The answer Paul gives in our text is that there is fellowship with Christ there. There is communion with Christ there. When we suffer for the same cause of righteousness that the Lord Jesus himself suffered, he meets us there in that suffering. There is a unique intimacy that we have with Christ when we share in his sufferings. And we understand that even in our own relationships with one another. Imagine a young Christian wife who gets pregnant for the first time. And she is thrilled, so excited to become a mom for the first time. And she and her husband start thinking of names. If it's a boy, we'll name him after your dad. And if it's a girl, we'll name him after my mom and so on. And they begin to think of themselves now as a, a family of, of three and not just the two of them. And in a few weeks, she tells the relatives, and they all rejoice with her. And in a few more weeks, she begins to show, and she likes standing in the mirror and seeing the bump. And then, in the inscrutable wisdom of God, this young mother has a miscarriage. She loses her baby. And she's inconsolable as she mourns the loss of her child. 
And she has Christian friends who come alongside her and seek to minister to her in this deepest of pain. And she appreciates the encouragement and the godly counsel of her friends. But no matter what they say, it just does little to help. But then there's a knock at the door of her bedroom, and in walks a friend who this young wife knows to have had a miscarriage in recent years. And as their eyes fix upon each other, welling up with tears, they embrace one another. And maybe without even a word spoken between them, a bond is forged between those two women that will last a lifetime, that will endure all manner of trials. The fellowship and the communion that is forged in the sharing of common suffering, it can't be captured in words. And how much more then in the Christian's relationship with our Savior? How much more is that true in our relationship with Christ? The sweetness of fellowship and communion to be had with him on the desert road of suffering is beyond words to describe. It lasts a lifetime and it withstands all manner of trials. Isn't it interesting that you don't hear people speak about enjoying the deepest and most memorable fellowship with Jesus when everything was going perfectly well in their life? You ever hear that? No, you don't. You hear people who have had to bury a child. You hear people who have had to battle years of cancer and chemotherapy. Or people like Johnny Erickson Tata, who was here with us last week, who's been a quadriplegic for 46 years. And on top of that, has to experience chronic pain. I think that if you can't feel anything from your neck down, you shouldn't be able to feel pain as well or move anything from your neck down. You shouldn't be able to feel pain as well. And yet she will say to you from this stage, as she addressed the staff sometime about a year ago, that it's in that weakness and in that trial and in that suffering that Jesus is the sweetest to her and to them that they depended on him like never before in their lives and that he showed up and met them like they had never before experienced. Pastor John puts it this way. He says, "In The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to him. They find in him a merciful high priest, a faithful friend who feels their pain, and a sympathetic companion who faced all the trials and temptations that they face. He is thus uniquely qualified to help them in their weakness and infirmities. And if that's the case, friends, don't sacrifice faithfulness to Christ in order to avoid suffering for his sake. Our instinct is to just avoid suffering, to do everything we can to get out of its way. But when suffering comes, don't, don't, do that. Don't forsake faithfulness to avoid what might be a chief means of fellowship with Christ. And don't waste that suffering by complaining about it or by sinking into despair. Recognize that in that suffering, you have an opportunity to see and know and enjoy the Lord Jesus in an unspeakably unique way. Count the comforts of a conflict-free life as loss for the sake of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and the sweet fellowship of his sufferings. And finally, we come, just briefly, the third sphere of knowledge 
in which we experience personal, intimate communion with Jesus, a saving knowledge of Christ consists not only in tasting Christ's sufficiency in justification and not only in experiencing Christ's fellowship in sanctification, but also, number three, in enjoying Christ's presence in glorification. In enjoying Christ's presence in glorification. Look with me at verse 11. He says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this juxtaposition of suffering in verse 10 and glorification in verse 11, it reminds me of Romans 8, 16, and 17, where Paul writes, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. See this connection. We are his children, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And that's what it's all about, friends. That is the consummation of all our faith, of all our worship, of all of our suffering for Christ's sake, all of our prayer, all of our fellowship with one another. Everything that we base our lives on in this life as Christians, in a bo- we, will, we will find their, the ultimate fulfillment in, of that and consummation of that in seeing the face of Jesus in seeing him face-to-face in a body and in a world free from the corruption of sin. Can you imagine that? When our bodies are raised imperishable, freed from the curse of sin, we will enjoy unhindered face-to-face communion with Christ. That is what will make heaven heaven. Psalm seventeen fifteen, David says, As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. In Job 19, verses 25 to 27, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job can't handle it. He says, I'm going to die. My skin is going to be destroyed, but I'm going to be raised in in a body. I, me, Job, I'm going to see God raised here on the earth. I, I can barely stand it. My heart faints within me. And David again in Psalm 27, 13, I would have despaired. Oh, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. And the hymn writers understand this today as well. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. Why? Why will it be paradise? His face forever to behold. And again, When I stand in glory, I will see his face. There I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Thank you, O my Father. In verse 11 of Philippians chapter 3, that phrase that the NAS translates as in order that is literally if perhaps. I love that. If perhaps I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Say, what, did Paul have doubts about his salvation? 
No, not in a million years. This was the same man who said that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8, that, who said in this very same letter that the God who begins a good work in, in a believer will bring it forth to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 6. So what's he saying then? He's expressing a humble incredulity that how could I, Paul, the chief of sinners, the least of all the apostles, who persecuted the church of God, the one who is so confident in myself and in my own filthy rags to take me to heaven, how could I, the very least of all the saints, take part in the ultimate triumph of God over death? And that thought ought to be the cry of your heart as well. Amazement. Me? Unhindered, face-to-face communion with the Lord Jesus? A body free from sin and corruption? a world free from pain and sickness and disease and sadness, how could I, me, with all my unrighteousness, all my sin, even all my sin since I've been a believer, even all my sin from this morning, how could I ever hope to be there? Of course, the answer is only by grace, only by grace, only on the ground of the righteousness of another. Dear friend, do you know Christ? Have you apprehended from the depths of your soul the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus? Have you tasted Christ's sufficiency and justification? Can you, along with the the Apostle Paul, gladly abandon all your grounds for self-righteousness, all claims to righteousness based on your good works, so that you may gain Christ and be found in him with a righteousness not your own? Have you experienced Christ's fellowship in sanctification? Can you, along with the Apostle Paul, face the loss of everything in your life, whether that be money, possessions, prestige, social status, an easy, conflict-free life, even family, if the Lord should will it so, and even life itself, if the Lord should will it so? Can you experience all that loss and call it gain because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, because of the surpassing value of the fellowship of his sufferings? And have you savored the unspeakable delight that will be yours when you enjoy Christ's presence in glorification? Has your heart been enraptured with the thought of finally seeing Christ face to face unhindered by sin? Is that what makes heaven heaven for you? And does the joy and the the hope of that day cause you to worship Christ in the here and now? To treasure that communion that you may have with him now through his sufficient word? Dear friends, what a wealth of treasure exists in this personal, intimate, experimental knowledge of Jesus Christ. Be much in communion with him. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But as you abide in him, just as the branches abide in the vine, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit continually works in you so that, as Paul has admonished us here in Philippians, that you might conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. And Father, that is our cry, that you would conform us into Christ's image, not only so that we can attain a standard of holiness that's better than we were or better than others, but so that we might know him, 
We thank you for justifying us, not only because we want to be forgiven and we want to escape punishment, we want to not be under the guilt of sin, but supremely because we know Christ as our justifier and taste his sufficiency in that provision of righteousness, in that pardon, in that protection, even in his pleading to you on our behalf. Father, may we, we be glad to count all things as loss, to gain only Christ and call it gain because of the surpassing value of his worth. May we say with the other hymn writer, go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, Father, with your favor, loss is gain. Strengthen us, empower us with the very power that you used to raise Christ from the dead, to walk in newness of life. And may we all know the sweetness of intimate, personal, day-by-day communion with you and your Son and your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.